Is euthanasia ever the right choice for a Christian to make? We're going to talk about that today and more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to BibleStudyPodcast.org. I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and of course, today is Wednesday, July the 18th, and every Wednesday we talk about either apologetics or cultural issues, or of course, we do uh, question and answers every second Wednesday of the month, but uh, that was last week, so today we're going to be doing apologetics or uh, or current cultural issues. And uh, before we get started today with the issue of euthanasia, I want to uh, to thank those of you who have been writing, as always. I, I absolutely love getting emails from you guys, but I got a very, very special email that, that just absolutely blessed me yesterday, and I want to share with you some of the things that um, that were contained in this email. It was a soldier named uh, named Michael who is currently deployed in Iraq, and he's been listening to our podcasts while he drives around uh, on patrol in an armored Humvee in some of the worst areas of the Sunni Triangle of Death. So, uh, man... God bless you, Michael. It is so, uh, it is just such a blessing. I, I can't even, it gives me chills just to think that, that you're listening and that some guys over in Iraq are listening. So uh, thank you so much for your email. I am going to um, to send some stuff off to you. I've got your uh, your APO address there at the bottom of your, of your email, and I will be getting some stuff to you. I want to thank you so much for your email and for listening. But I want to pray today uh, just a very special blessing and, uh, of course, for protection for our troops in Iraq and, and uh, for Michael. So uh, if you guys could just, just uh, join me in a moment of prayer here. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word has traveled as far as the ends of the earth, Lord. And we thank you so much, Lord, for Michael and uh, for his testimony, Lord, and for his and for his faith in you as he represents our country in a very dangerous part of the world right now. Lord, I ask in the name of Jesus right now that you would put a very special blessing on Michael, and I pray, Lord, that you would protect him and protect his, you know, his friends and his troops who surround him, Lord, day and night. I pray that you would be right there with them, protecting them, keeping them safe, and blessing them, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would open up opportunities for Michael to share his faith with his fellow soldiers. And Lord, I just pray that you would help him continue to grow closer to you. I thank you so much, Lord, for everybody who's listening. And I pray that you would use this time to bless all of us. For your glory, Lord, because we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go ahead and uh, and get started here. Now, while most of you, you know, you already know my stance on the value of, of life in the womb, and you know my stance on abortion, I haven't really ever discussed, you know, what I believe to be the Christian view of euthanasia. Now, if you don't know what euthanasia is, the term euthanasia literally means happy death, uh, which holds the implication that by being put to death, the individual whose life is at stake will experience, you know, a, a greater amount of happiness. So euthanasia is basically bringing a life to an end, uh, happily. Well, so to speak, anyway. Well, there are two types of euthanasia. First of all, there's passive 
euthanasia, which is where a person is allowed to die naturally. In other words, they're not kept alive by artificial means such as respirators or even medicines. Now, an example of that would be my grandfather. My grandfather was passively euthanized. He had suffered with bouts of cancer for years and years, and he had undergone chemotherapy and, you know, the whole nine yards. He'd gone through all that for, for years, the last years of his life. And for years, you know, he had fought to keep himself alive, putting up with and fighting and tolerating the sickness that, that comes with, with chemotherapy. But when he was 81 years old, he'd been so beat up and so weakened by the years of battling cancer that he requested that if his cancer were to ever return, that he would not be put through chemotherapy again. So shortly after that, the cancer did return, and he did die from it. He did pass away from it. So, you know, he continued to be fed, and he was given water, and he was given every other natural physical need he had in order to stay alive. He simply didn't undergo any treatment that for years he had feared would would kill him anyway. So this is called passive euthanasia. And then there's active euthanasia, which is where a person's death is hastened by either deprivation of natural means, such as, you know, food and water um, and, and air, you know, whatever, or by unnatural means. An example of deprivation of natural means, uh, one example would be the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, my wife and I were just watching that the other night. And of course, at the end, the main character played by Jack Nicholson, he has a lobotomy, and one of the other patients who is really... Um, in this mental institution, but he's not uh, mentally deficient. He's not crazy. He sees what's happened to uh, to Jack Nicholson's character, so he suffocates him with a pillow. Now, of course, that's just a movie. Let me give you a real-life example. Um, a, an example of deprivation of natural means would be what happened with Baby Doe back in 1982. And some of you who are younger might not have even heard about this, but uh, I was about 10 years old at the time. I remember seeing it in the headlines. And what happened is a couple in the state of Indiana gave birth to a child who had Down syndrome. So the baby also had a blockage near his esophagus, which was obviously, you know, something that was correctable. It's it's something, it's a procedure that they can correct. But one of the doctors, Dr. Owens, um, who delivered the baby, told the parents that the baby was, quote, a blob, unquote, and that it only had a 50% chance of surviving the surgery on its esophagus, which was totally false. There was an 88% success rate on uh, on children in the womb uh, for this operation. So the so Dr. Owens also said that even if it did survive the, uh, the surgery, the child would unquestionably suffer from severe, severe mental retardation. So what did Dr. Owens advise the parents? He advised them to refuse to consent to the operation in order that their baby, baby doe, would be allowed to die. The way that the baby would die without the surgery is that the acids from the baby's stomach would spill into its lungs, thus uh, asphyxiating or suffocating the baby. So after only half an hour of consideration and deliberation, the parents decided not to have their baby undergo the surgery. They didn't consent to uh, to the care. So a second doctor, Dr. Schaefer, he, he came in and he questioned the advice that Dr. Owens had given. And what he tried to do is he tried to take uh, the issue to a third doctor who was a pediatric surgeon at another hospital. And this third doctor referred to the advice of Dr. Owens as, quote, infanticide. But you know, obviously that didn't stop Dr. Owens from instructing his nurses to feed baby doe orally, even though by doing so there was a good chance that it would cause the baby to choke and to die. 
Dr. Owens expressly disallowed feeding the baby intravenously and instructed the nurses to keep the baby sedated. Well, that sounds nice that, you know, he would keep the baby sedated and everything because, you know, that way he, you know, wouldn't have to listen to the baby screaming and suffering and everything. But the reason he wanted to keep the baby sedated was because it would eliminate or reduce the baby's choke reflex and thus it would speed up the whole process of death. So this whole thing was very quickly taken before a judge in Indiana who ruled that the parents have the right to refuse treatment for their baby. So despite the fact that people were literally lined up at the hospital, there were couples lined up at the hospital to adopt this baby. But Nonetheless, the baby became dehydrated after, you know, just a couple days as, as any baby would. And despite the demand of the hospital's chief of staff to start feeding the baby through an IV, it was too late. The baby died of malnutrition. And this is an example of depriving a person of natural means of survival. An example of euthanasia by unnatural means would be, of course, uh, somebody like the notorious Dr. Jack Kevorkian. Dr. Kevorkian uh, has spent the last few years in prison. He just recently got out, which is uh, one of the things that prompted me to do this podcast or this subject for this podcast. Uh, But anyway, what he would do is he would put together a lethal combination of medicines, hook it up to an IV, and allow the patient to turn the IV uh, machine on to get it, to get the whole thing uh, going. So he wasn't actually hitting the switch. He was basically loading the gun, pointing at their head, and putting the trigger in the hands of uh, his victims or, or his clients. So despite the fact that his clients or victims or whatever you want to call would have lived longer, their suffering was ended and their death hastened as a result of this lethal concoction of, of medicines. Former Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, quote, it is better for all the world if, instead of waiting to execute the degenerate offspring for crime or let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles is enough. That's a harsh statement. In other words, if there's a pattern of crime or genetic defection in a family throughout three generations, we should start killing that family's offspring. So for Dr. Kevorkian, people who, who want that kind of euthanasia, euthanasia is a means of ending life in order to avoid pain or suffering for the individual, whereas for former Justice Holmes, uh, he wanted to euthanize people for the betterment of society. Now, in response to all this, uh, you know, where do we stand as Christians? What should, what are we supposed to believe? Well, as Christians, of course, the first thing we want to do is look at the Bible and see, you know, what does the Bible say about euthanasia? And some people will actually tell you that the Bible doesn't say anything about euthanasia. No, you will never find the word euthanasia in the Bible. I promise you, it's not in there. But can you find support for disallowing euthanasia? Well, first of all, the Bible says in Exodus 20:13, "Thou shalt not murder." Now, that's commonly misunderstood as "thou shalt not kill," uh, and sometimes it is translated that way. But there is a Hebrew word for kill, and there is a Hebrew word for murder, and the word found here is murder. Uh, second, according to the Bible, God created life. That's Genesis 1:27, and as such, God has the right in His sovereignty to take it as well. Deuteronomy 32:39 says, quote, "See now that I, I am He, and there is no God beside me." 
It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So that verse obviously tells us that God gives life and God takes life away. And only he, only he has the right to do so. The third example is, uh, you know, the one character in the Bible who underwent so much torment that he desired to be euthanized, who would be, of course, Job. And if you've ever read the book of Job, even his wife says, you know, basically curse God so that he will, you know, strike you dead and you can just get this all over with. But Job wouldn't do that as simple as that would have been. If you read the third chapter of Job, you'll see that his suffering was so intense. His suffering was so great. He was wishing that he had never been born. Likewise, Jonah's suffering was so great that he cried out to the Lord in Jonah uh, chapter 4 verse 3, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. But being sovereign, God obviously denied that request. In fact, so deplorable and so despicable is the act of taking another person's life, even for the sake of mercy, that King Saul's armor bearer refused to kill King Saul at King Saul's command. King Saul said, you know, kill me, basically, with your with your sword. But the, the armor bearer wouldn't do it. So instead, King Saul was forced to take his own sword, and he fell on it. And we can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 4. So, you know, King Saul basically requested to be euthanized, but his own armor bearer wouldn't do it. Another thing that might support a stance against euthanasia would be that the Bible declares in James 3, 9 that human life is so important and so precious and so sacred in God's eyes that it's morally wrong to even curse another person. So, obviously, you know, taking all this into consideration, we can see that there is uh, a stance taken against euthanasia in the Bible. There's no question about that. But I do believe that we need to make a distinction. See, the Bible prohibits, obviously, active euthanasia, but there is no biblical evidence to uh, to reject passive euthanasia. Basically, if, if death is coming, we are under no obligation biblically to, uh, to somehow keep it alive, artificially or, or however. We can allow the natural process of death to occur, so long as we're not causing it by withholding natural means, such as food, water, air, etc., Proverbs 31 verses 6 through 7 say, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So basically, the Bible is telling us here that it's okay for uh, for somebody to be um, sedated or to, to be made comfortable in their suffering. As Dr. Geisler writes in, in his book, Christian Ethics, he says, The Bible recommends that the dying be given a shot, but not that they be shot. The dying should be shot with a sedative, but not a bullet, uh, and and certainly not any lethal forms of, of poison or medicine either, for that matter. So now, you know, we see that the Bible totally disallows active euthanasia, basically, you know, what Dr. Kevorkian was doing and what uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes was uh, was promoting. The Bible expressly forbids active euthanasia. You see, this is all just a matter of human life. It depends on how a society views the sanctity and the privilege of life, or the gift of life, as God has given it to us. It's a matter of recognizing God's sovereignty. But you know what? We should have seen this coming, because it's all a result of the Roe v. Wade decision. 
This is just a matter of humanity not recognizing the value of life. Professor Peter Singer says that, quote, the life of a fetus is of no greater value than the life of a non-human animal at a similar level of rationality. Now, it must be admitted that these arguments apply to the newborn baby as much as to the fetus. So we should be able to kill a newborn baby just as easily as we can kill a fetus, according to Peter Singer. Part of the Humanist Manifesto demands, quote, an individual's right to die with dignity, euthanasia, and the right to suicide. Of course, if you take God out of the picture, like the Humanist Manifesto does, of course euthanasia is justifiable because there's no God to be accountable to. I mean, it logically follows that if we don't value life before birth, if we don't have any respect for life before birth, then of course we're not going to have any respect for life following birth either. If you parallel, if you look at the, the similarities between euthanasia and abortion, they both have the same subject, a human being. They both have the same purpose. Uh, somebody is unwanted and they both have the same result, which is, which is death. Former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop put it this way. He said, Physicians know that the actual moment of birth changes but little in the condition of the baby. If abortion is allowed a few days before birth, how is that different from killing a few days after birth? Abortion, I saw, was leading to infanticide, and infanticide was euthanasia. What could keep it from extending to older people? So this is obviously just a logical conclusion from, you know, the Supreme Court ruling that there is no value to life with the Roe v. Wade decision. Just to wrap this up very quickly, because this is actually going a lot longer than uh, than I had wanted it to, we're going to have to have part two next week because I want to address some uh, some objections to uh, to our position against euthani- uh, euthanasia. But very quickly, let's talk about some of the problems with euthanasia. First of all, rather than providing or promoting fair treatment for every sick person, let me ask you something. Who is more likely to be told that euthanasia is their best option? A rich person who comes into a doctor or a poor person who comes in to see that same doctor? Well, of course, the poor person is more likely to be told that euthanasia is their best option. Why? Because it's in the doctor's best financial interest to keep the rich person alive. The longer a person stays alive, the more medical bills they're going to assess. So euthanasia is actually going to promote discrimination because the person who is less likely to pay their doctor bill is more likely to be told that euthanasia is their best choice. Also, studies have been conducted in the Netherlands where euthanasia is actually legal. It's been legal for years there. And what they found is that, quote, intolerable physical symptoms are not the reason most patients request physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia, unquote. Instead, rather, what they found is that 95% of the patients who commit suicide or agree to be euthanized suffered from major psychiatric illnesses at the time of their death. So obviously, based on the findings of these studies on the Netherlands, we find that doctors who have the option of recommending euthanasia aren't taking the time to correctly diagnose their patients. They're not diagnosing the mental issues that their patients have. Instead, they're rushing to an incorrect assessment of their patients because that gun is already loaded and it's just sitting on the counter. The doctor has the right to do that in the Netherlands, and obviously they're abusing that right. And let me give you one final statistic here. In 1990, about 11,800 deaths in the Netherlands were 
inflicted by doctors. That's that's about 9% of all the deaths in the Netherlands. And of those 11,800 deaths that were inflicted by doctors, almost half were inflicted without the consent of the patient. Now, you can mark my words here. This is an issue that might not be big right now. Euthanasia might not be a big thing right now, but it's gaining steam. And within the next 20 years, this is going to be a major issue. It's going to be as big in the world in 20 years as abortion is today. It's just a matter of time because it's just a matter of not valuing human life. Of course, I'm not a prophet or anything. I'm not making any prophecies. I'm not, you know, saying that this is what God's saying, but I guarantee you, just based on the logistics of it, that this is going to be just such a huge issue very soon. So anyway, thank you so much for listening today. I hope this has been a blessing to you as always. Next week, uh, for next Wednesday's podcast, we will talk about some of the uh, some of the reasons that people want to promote euthanasia and we'll talk about whether those are legitimate reasons or whether we can uh whether we can diffuse them so god bless you thank you so much for listening today i hope you guys have a great week and keep growing closer to jesus i'll see you guys next week